0: Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. Alphalist is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is proudly presented by Dell Technologies. They are a team of experts that helps you solving all your IT-related challenges and IT needs in your daily business and consult you in choosing the right end-to-end IT solutions or products. They offer IT technology solutions for companies of any size, tailored to their needs, and have a huge product portfolio with IT solutions and know-how. They can help CTOs through providing end-to-end IT solutions, be it laptops, PCs, workstations or server storage, cloud and IoT solutions or financing. If you want to know more, please check the show notes to get a link. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me is Kore Nordmann, and he is CTO of Frontastic, and Frontastic is headless front-end for e-commerce. Kore, first of all, did I pronounce your name correctly?
1: Absolutely correctly, which is not that simple, especially in English, because it originates from Norway and is written the wrong way and translated to German. And so yeah, most people get it wrong, but absolutely correct.
0: Okay, but uh, your, your accent um, in a way uh, admits that you're from Germany as well, right?
1: Correct. Yes. My parents only got that name during vacations in uh, Norway and just heard it there. So, yeah, this is why it's written wrong. But yes, I originally from
0: uh, from Germany and still working and living in Germany. Okay. And uh, you're building Frontastic and um what fantastic is we maybe um like dig a bit deeper um you're just about to close like a crazy big vc round uh, from 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 what i know and uh, it's 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 yet kept kept secret so uh, not not something to announce here um still um i found you are like a pretty active guy in the PHP community and you you spent like a couple of of years with PHP. Is that correct as well?
1: Yes, um, I would say I grew up in the PHP community with my first talk around 2005, I think. I gave many talks at many conferences, participated in a couple of books, uh, wrote a lot of uh, magazine articles and was an active open source contributor to a couple of also kind of popular PHP project. So this is where I come from um, or where I develop my professional life, um, especially. I like also other languages and I have a a pet peeve for functional uh, programming languages, which you cannot live as easily when working with PHP. But yes, I originate from the PHP world and this is where I grew
0: up. And you're still actively using PHP and are actively coding or...
1: I would love to, to be honest. Um, in my role as a CTO, it's, I almost never code anymore, to be honest. Um, it's right now for me, mostly about hiring people. And then it's about architectural, about product vision things. And it's a lot less about actual coding. Even I miss that from time to time. But since I have a two months. Uh, old child already right now. I do not even have time in my uh, spare time, if there is any left in a founder role, um, to pro- work on anything which is related to coding. So actually not coding that much anymore, only assisting in debugging when it comes to issues which span all our systems. Then it sometimes helps that I join debugging sessions, but besides that, no coding, sadly.
0: So you you're the one who has that 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 vision on bugs as well, right? I, or that that directly spots everything uh, whenever it happens. <laughs> is that right?
1: Yes, yes. I think this is a lot related to how much do you know about systems or complex systems, especially when the systems and the system interaction gets more complex it really helps to have the full vision in mind. Luckily, I'm not the only one at Frontastic who has that, but also this kind of vision is really hard to transfer to other people. And this is certainly a benefit I have as a founder and as one of the technical co-founders who's basically started the creating Frontastic from the scratch. And yeah, that vision is irreplaceable basically um, and that cross-understanding or cross-service understanding.
0: I, I also see it see it like that that this is like the the a good baseline to start on right if you um, really come th- from the world where where uh, like the HTTP world where things were transactional um and request based um and now you enter the world of 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 stateful applications um and and leave the world of stateless applications it kind of at least helps uh, knowing that uh Knowing the world that was there before, right?
1: Absolutely. And one thing you learn when you go deeper into the stateful world we especially have in the front-end right now. We always also had that in the back-end, but this is maybe a different story and a different talk. But right now, we are talking about state mostly in the front-end when it comes to React Redux, for example, but all those other implementations. It's also again and again about state. Even the state is maybe also often uh, more indirect by using hooks or context in the React world by now. But in the end, we are talking about talking about state in the front-end, the state the user sees, the state of input elements, the state on the server, and how those interact. And if you compare that with the classic, restful, stateless request world we solved with PHP, Java, uh, Ruby on Rails, all those tool chains we have and had, this front-end world is so much more complex because of merging different types of stage and still maintaining a sensible UI state out of that. But yes, it's really helpful to know that. And it's I like when developers are aware of what stateless transfer means or what the architectural properties of HTTP are. But in the end, yeah, the thinking inside the front end and keeping a consistent ui state is maybe even more complex and also something really hard to learn.
0: Yeah, and um why is it so hard? I think it's mostly about
1: asynchronicity. So, if you process a classic http request, um it's basically input uh, process data output and maybe we do some backend calls in between uh, ask other backends if we are something like a backend for frontend integrating multiple other services then we have some calls but it's always about at some point we are done with it and we just return a result and something has to process that result and This flow basically never stops in the front end. Um, A user comes to a website, we are talking about single page applications uh, nowadays, and user enters the website, logs in, then you have the login state, then they enter some information in some input fields, usually always um, the applications are of course more complex than input fields usually, but in the end it's that. the user interacts with the website and then suddenly you have different states inside complex domain models between what's inside the user interface and what is the current representation in the back end. And merging that also with failure resilience when we are contacting additional back end services asynchronously and con- update state in the backend, retrieve state updates from the back end, and creating a shared state, a, uni- a unified state out of that. That's, for me, there's no easy way to solve that still. Um, React does an excellent job or did an excellent job at proposing an architecture solving that, which then has been adapted by Vue, for example. Angular also, they are losing market shares from my point of view right now, but they also find nice ways to model that. But in the end, this is still really, really hard. And the actual state management is all, again, also with Redux, MobX, and all the tools we have still isn't really solved from my point of view. And it helps if you have a sensible abstraction in place, of course, for, for your domain model.
0: And um, a bit provocative. I mean, I also like single-page web apps and um, I also decided for single-page web apps framework in the past. Um, but every once in a while I ask myself, is it worth it? And that's what I ask you now.
1: It might not always be worth it, and I, um, I'm, I'm sure it's not always worth it. So, it depends a lot on what you want to implement, and we have an interesting situation that you have simple. Websites, I would say, which just share information. Um, you could talk about a blog or something. And then certainly I wouldn't go for, for such a single page application in those cases. Just render some HTML on the server and you'll be fine. On the very far other end, we of course have what we know from native applications on our mobile phones and of course also from our desktop computers where we have the state management and where we have complex applications where you certainly would go for a native app when we talk about mobile devices. And then we have the space in between where it gets a little bit more blurry. And since Frontastic is e-commerce, let's use that as an example for now. Um, Which e-commerce sites really need an SPA? Um, For example, Amazon isn't an SPA and um, probably that's the best way for them to go. But why would you go for an SBA for, for an e-commerce site or what are the, could be the reasons for that? I think there are certain interactional patterns or user experiences which are a lot better modeled by single page applications where you can merge all those states you have in may, maybe even multiple backends the user flow, the user inputs, where you can create a great experience out of that. So to summarize it or trying to summarize that, I would say, if you want to be excellent in the front end and want to provide excellence in user workflows, in user experience, then at some point you probably want to look at that. If you just want to be another online shop, or your differentiation inside the market depends on other things, which might be, for example, your products, and there are no competitors where you have to be, or where compared to them, you have to be better in user experience, then just go with the classic site, of course. But if you really want to capture the user and provide the best possible experience when doing online shopping, then at some point you should go, or m- basically must go, to,
0: go to using an SPA. Does it make sense? Uh, well, partly. I mean, you just mentioned <laughs> you just mentioned Amazon. I I never thought <laughs> thought about the fact that they actually don't use SPAs, but it's it's true. I mean, you can feel it as a developer using their shop. You can easily see it and you easily feel it. I would love to ask Werner Vogels if he would decide for SPAs <sighs> these days um and i could imagine that the answer would be no um and i think like they are kind of a very good uh, competitor to to look at right um as like an, an owner of an e-commerce shop so why do it if amazon doesn't do it and amazon has like a lot of resources um i think it's it's a very valuable question i mean all all of the the uh, the said um, things absolutely make sense. Um, all of the things you said absolutely make sense. But
1: Yeah, I think it's about the target group of your online shop. So Amazon basically already won the war on e-commerce, of course, because they are by far leading in market shares, especially worldwide. So, um, but what is the main reason for shopping on Amazon? I mean, it's I'm not Amazon, so they probably have a better answer to that. But for me, it is just the sortiment. So I know that everything I want to buy, I can get on Amazon. Can I use Amazon for inspirational shopping, for shopping on of interesting things, of luxury goods? No, I don't think so. Or at least I don't do that because discovering interesting products for me, Amazon fails almost entirely at that, which I find surprising, but just just a fun fact, this didn't happen very recently to me, but still like two years ago, you are looking at Nikon lenses and then Amazon suggests you a Canon uh, uh, body for a camera body. Why the hell are they doing this? Obviously, building excellent recommendation uh, algorithms either is not worth the effort, according to Amazon, or given the, their sortiment size, it's just impossible to do. But I think exactly there there is a chance for smaller vendors. So I'm not talking about, the, let's say, top five e-commerce sites in Germany, but how do we want to compete? be a competitor to Amazon when you're selling products in a space where Amazon already exists and also Zalando, for example, exists? And I think there, it means that you have to provide the facilities for users to actively discover interesting new products and maybe even buy things they do not really need and be inspired by your website. And then, of course, it's about user experience and about excellence in user experience because those shops are not the default go-to place for uh, buying basically anything.
0: Um, yes and no, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I, I was actually looking at Zalando yesterday and just, just wanted to, wanted to shop for for a few clothes. And, um, I just realized, yeah, okay, maybe there are like certain tools on the, on Zalando so that I can discover certain looks or shop for certain looks, but still I would be very old school on this still and go to a shop yeah. and just just like one shop i know that this shop kind of has the style i like and um I, I just realized okay i would go to the shop and and buy whatever i want um and and rather be pragmatic on it instead of trying to discover a new way of of shopping clothes online um which maybe is or is not provided um and another example where um where where this actually works like inspiration actually works purely through the, the assortment it's also a very old school and ugly website it's it's AliExpress or uh, Alibaba where I every once in a while stumble in and uh, like click a p- few products and then end up ordering something crazy um, and uh, this is where it works also without like the rich experience so I don't know if I agree with that uh, but <laughs> honestly like also, I know that from from like a technical perspective or like a fellow nerd perspective, if I would think about how to implement a faceted search best these days, I would maybe end up implementing an s p a because that's Absolutely. just how it feels better from my perspective as an engineer, and that's how I like it most. but as a user, do I care? I think no. I don't care. <laughs> um,
1: to be honest, it, to be successful as an e-commerce site, it's a lot about your assortment or sortiment. That's and will always, most likely, be the most important thing. Um, but if you have a competitor competitor with very similar so with a very similar assortment, I think then it starts getting also to be about user experience. It's a, it's a stupid example after all, but I know that, for example, for my wife, I'm as an IT lar- uh, or somebody with an IT background, I usually don't care so much about online ex- about experiences, user experience. I just know, okay, this is hard. So if somebody fails in user experience, I'm able to just ignore that and still continue shopping. But one I find this more interesting, uh, seeing my wife using e-commerce sites. She gets so horribly annoyed if the user experience fails. And one of the most common examples is you're on a product listing page, you click on a product, then go back because you want to search for more products, and you end up in a different position in the product listing. She will stop using your online shop if you fail at that immediately no matter what assortment you have and how much she's interested in your products. And I heard that from many people by now, and this is also an experience we see um, with users of our customers' online shops. Mm -hmm. So at some point it will be about user experience. Of course, this scroll back to your earlier position will also or can also work in a traditional website, not in an SBA, but those things are important. Maybe we are not the right target group for that because I also do not care
0: so much personally, but I know the users of our customers do. And I think also tech people like building it. Um, I mean, even for boring websites these days, right? If you look at frameworks like Gatsby or Next and Nuxt, then it's pretty much about like putting a single-page web app on something where a single-page web app doesn't belong, like on a static website where maybe the content is, uh, I don't know, grabbed from a certain Airtable or whatever and rendered then in an SPA, even if you don't need an SPA. Uh, but that's also the the technical reality. Just tech people love building that. And tech people sometimes strive for high complexity. And that is, I think... A danger that I'm also like openly aware of and, and facing. It's also fun <laughs> every <laughs> once in a while, but is it needed in all cases? I guess not.
1: Certainly not. Um I stick on that. I'm personally a big fan of simplicity and stupid technologies, which just work. And this love for complexity. I think it's also kind of nice, um, because this means people still love playing around. And this is one way of expressing also your creativity, playing around with tools, playing around with ideas. This is also a great trait. The question to me is, and always was also in, in, since many years, is... Where should I play around with those technologies? If it's your private project, go ahead, just do that. If if this is your professional project and you or somebody else will have to maintain that for the upcoming years, then please think twice if you really want to go all crazy and all fancy with all the new shiny tools. Because one example, um, we touched that topic already and probably will again. I kind of still kind of like PHP. It's a dislike technology. I'm aware of that. And of course, the language isn't the most beautiful one. But PHP is damn stable and it will always be. All the problems you run into with PHP already had been solved 10 years ago and had been solved thousands of times ever since. This means if you're running a stack on top of PHP, it will be just stable. Now go for the newest, shiniest technology. Um, I know how many people failed to run stacks on scale, especially on scale, because, uh, I mean, if you don't get any uh, serious number of requests, then it doesn't matter at all. But on scale, on top of Node.js for a couple of years, the stabilized, of course, by now. But when a new technology emerges and you jump right on the hype train, you will run into a lot of problems. There are nice articles how Docker failed many people when it comes to storage, when it comes to interacting with the storage devices on a Linux kernel, how this can fail in such funny and interesting ways. This of course is kind of interesting, but do I want to run my customers' money through those kind of stacks? I'm not sure. I'm always tempted to pick the most boring stack available. On the other hand, as mentioned, Playing around with those things for your private projects, go for it. You will learn something.
0: So you don't recommend Docker then?
1: I think it's stabilized sufficiently by now. And um, there are a couple of people and companies who can run that. Um, But we actually used Docker also for development environments of our customers. And Docker fails in so many interesting ways. If you use it on random developer laptops and developer systems, developers updating to the most recent beta release of Windows or Mac OS, and then Docker will fail in interesting ways. So be sure what to use Docker for, for using something like Kubernetes for scaling very dynamic loads. Makes sense in many cases. It does not make sense for your single block and it might not even make sense for every microservice you come up with, but there are use cases for that, for sure. But it's not always the best tool for each job, obviously.
0: The The funny thing is that like the focus of Docker as a company um, or what they succeed with uh, seems to be the end user, right? Seems to be the desktop application, seems to be the desktop client on on Mac and Windows, uh, that's at least how 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 they spin it, um, yeah. But funny enough, like a lot of people I know switched from Mac to Windows because Windows um, is able to handle Docker more nicely, right? Um, and that's, Absolutely, that's 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 really funny.
1: The recent pricing changes also basically advocate Docker for desktops. Maybe not because you suddenly have to pay for it, uh, but yes, this shows that it's certainly a focus of them. But yes, we ran into so many problems with that. Um, Of course, they are all solvable. But by now, just for a fun fact, if a developer needs a system in the background, uh, running in the background to develop with, we just boot cloud machines and provide a simple shell tool which makes sure their local changes are synchronized into the cloud. And this is what's a lot more stable, like magnitudes more stable. For us and for our customers, developers.
0: I, I would also, I, or I, I have high hopes in in GitHub code spaces. I don't know if you looked at that. Um, Not yet. Like the, the a, a space in the cloud, you can you can just use VS Code and you have a plugin. Um, you can you can write everything on your local computer. You can do everything as you as, as it would be hosted on your machine. And it has a state. It has like a preview URL. You can you can just spin it up um, and it just works and um, if you're idle then it auto- automatically shuts down as if you have it on your desktop so that's I, I I see this could be I mean it's 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 in a way like a like a thin client back then right um <laughs> but but I see that like maybe this time it it succeeds, right? Uh, sometimes- this is actually
1: what we are also providing uh, our our customers, developers, with. We spin up those we call them sandboxes, and um, we spin them up. You run one command line tool in the background, which uses Mutagen, which is a great Go tool for that, by the way, which uses Mutagen to synchronize your local changes with that remote machine, and it just works. Everything just works on all the systems. Um, Mutagen being Go works on all uh, on all operating systems, Windows, Mac, no issues at all there since then, since we deployed that to our customers. And yes, they just boot up. We call them sandboxes. Um, and since then, we don't have any issues. So yes, Docker was su- supposed to solve that problem, but cloud machines are the better solution for us by now with a small shell script running in the background
0: in the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, funny enough. Uh, funny enough. Um, and yeah, maybe the development aspect uh, and needing ne- needing to boot up um, uh, some sort of an environment on your local computer or iPad, um, maybe it just disappears at a certain time, right? Could be. I think
1: the complexity of integrated development environments, or short IDEs, is I mean, with, for example, when talking about TypeScript, with all the type analysis and suggestions you get there, this will still always need a strong, rather strong laptop CPU, for example, be, to be able to use that. I'm not sure how good over time, especially in bigger enterprise projects, uh, web IDEs will get, but they could even solve that to correct. Um, but right now... The power IDEs consume in bigger enterprise projects will still require a sensible laptop to use. But yes, if that is solved on top of that, then maybe you can even use web editors at some point and work on your iPad even as a software developer.
0: Yeah, would be great. Would be great. This episode is kindly sponsored by Okta Customer Identity Management. If you're transforming into a digital platform and are facing identity management challenges, listen closely now, because Okta offers the market-leading solution to help you make identity and access management work as a service. A platform that offers endless ways to connect with your employees and customers. Get support for your most important customer facing initiatives. Integrate identity and access into every app and create secure and engaging experiences in no time by outsourcing workforce or customer identity management to Okta. Get started in 15 minutes and test IAM or CM as a service. Create frictionless registrations and login experiences for your applications and make identity the foundation for your zero trust strategy and enable access for all users, regardless of their location, device or network. Visit alphalist.com slash Okta to try it out. In an upcoming episode, I talk to Sagnik Nandi, Okta's CTO about everything identity management. Um, Funny enough, um, I mean, I was just referring to thin clients back then and in a way it, it was history repeating. We also have history repeating in, in, in other areas. So microservices, for example, um, like microservices versus monoliths. So I had like great guests here, uh, like David Heinemeyer-Henson or Charity Majors or um, the, the former CTO of Sh- of Shopify um, who were actively like fighting against microservices and uh, against the, the complexity and it perfectly... Fits um, the discussions we had around SPAs, and it's also history repeating, right? We had ZOA in the nineties, so service oriented architecture, mm-hmm. and now we have micro. We, we come up with microservices. What is what is your take on that? Um, A similar one, I guess, because. Internally to my engineers,
1: I say there are exactly two reasons to split out a service or microservice. I don't really like the term microservice because what's micro is not clearly defined. I heard people saying it's only micro if it's less than 100 lines of code or something like that. So it's a hard term, but let's stay with that. So the only two reasons for me to split out a microservice are either it has very different scaling requirements. So for example, the write load versus read load is entirely different than on other parts of your system. So you need a different hosting stack, operational stack for that. And the other reason is, do you have a dedicated team working just on this single aspect of your software? But this means it's probably not micro up to most definitions anymore because the team usually is something between five to eight developers. and five to eight developers working full-time on a service, that's probably not micro up to most definitions. Because, and the reasons for that, integrating on a service level is a lot harder than integrating inside a monolith because testing or writing integration tests, automating integration tests starts getting harder. You need to have um, operation, all the oper- operational automation for Each of your services. You have to have monitoring for all your services, et cetera, et cetera. Everything which happens through network is more likely to fail over time, obviously, because network communication is less stable than local communication, especially in memory communication. So I'm tempted to say don't use microservices. But on the other hand, there are by now and Again, I'm talking a little bit about e-commerce, but there are so many great services and great solutions out there, which are technically certainly not microservices anymore, that you still want to make use of them. And to be excellent again and be better than your competitors, you probably will have to use at some point some of those services you find on the internet. This can be the best possible search in an online shop, maybe even with semantic enrichment, for example. This can be the best commerce engine in the background, plus the best content management system you want to provide your marketing and search engine optimizers with. So in those cases, we might not go all microservices. And you probably noticed I really, I do not really like thinking in microservices. But we still or will have, again, a best-of-breed world. And this means in the end, we again have service-oriented architecture, even nobody uses the term anymore today, um, with combining the best services you find for the domains you want to solve. And then integrating them, of course, still is hard. Everything across network is harder to maintain than locally, but it might then be worth the effort.
0: Yeah but um I see see like there's a huge difference between talking about real microservices let's say in e-commerce you have a checkout process uh, where you have the checkout and the payment um and let's say the cart and the product detail page and like all the different the different areas of an online shop you split them into different services and maybe even have I don't know a service that just returns the title tag of um, a product detail page, right? That mm-hmm. might exist in certain bigger e-commerce um, shops, uh, I, I've heard. Um, there's a huge difference between that and only using and integrating a certain best of re technology, such as a search, right?
1: Yeah, if you if you phrase it like that, I'm certainly opposing microservices <laughs> because I really don't see the point in that. As mentioned, if it has different scaling requirements or if a dedicated team is working on that, and there might even be online shops where a dedicated team is working on the title tech, I don't see that, but it might be the case. Then it can make sense. Other than that, I'm tempted to say, keep it simple, keep it stupid, and it will make your life easier. And there's another thing about that. I mean, There is this concept of hexagonal architecture, which basically, I'm really simplifying it down here, but which basically means protect your domain against uh, the outsides and against different concepts, maybe, Um, which means that if you follow those principles, then it will also always be possible if different scaling requirements show up at some point or different or you can split up uh, split out a certain domain into a dedicated team to split a monolith extract that part of your domain which is protected against the other parts of your domain via sensible interfaces and run a microservice on top of that just for that Another reason, uh, by the way, can be, and this goes into the direction of different scaling requirements, using dedicated technology, for example, dedicated storage engines. For most of your application, it might might still make sense to use a relational database management system, but for this single part of your domain, it makes sense to use... uh, table-based database or um, document storage or something like that because of different sta- scaling requirements. But then if you follow principles of, for example, hexagonal architecture with protecting domains each other against each other, then you can still split out that service. And this is the way I try to also teach inside our engineering teams that they keep that in mind, sensible separation of concerns and then you can, will be able to split things out if it really is needed at some point.
0: Okay, understood. Um, how many engineers do you actually have in your company? I mean, that also like tells a lot about where it makes sense to cut and where it doesn't make sense, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so... If we are talking about pure product development, uh, then we are talking about right now about ten engineers. Um, On top of that, we have solution architects and customer success team closely working together with our customers, and also in support. Since we are a technical product, um, we also have engineers again. Um, I'm planning in the next in this year to actually extend the development team by about 12 positions. So if you're interested in what I'm saying here, uh, get in contact with me, I'm hiring. Um, But yes, so the pure product development right now is 10 people um, and you cannot spread 10 people across like 10 microservices. This just doesn't make sense. And I even know companies who, have a development team of two and then run ten different microservices, where they have yes, well, they <laughs> will be busy most of the time keeping dependencies and sync between those
0: microservices. And are you then digging a moat between frontend and backend? So do your backend engineers also work on frontend, or do you have full stack engineers, or so how do you do you spin that?
1: The term full-stack engineer is very much dip- disputed, of course. But yes, we even have full-stack uh, engineers. So what I believe is, and that's another topic, if you take a look at our single-page application, which we call the studio, where marketing people can orchestrate services, define how a landing page, a product data page can look like, this is a React application with a PHP backend and a CouchDB as a database. And... Um, how does such a team work together on this? So, yes, a traditional way of splitting that is okay, you have this front end team working on the React front end, and you have a back end team working on the back end. But such a back end, even it's RESTful, PHP, and all those kind of things, always should implement what the front end team needs. And for me, this is, we also call that back end for front end, obviously. Um, this back end is written for the front end developers. The front end, defines the user experience, defines the user flow, and the back end then should be optimized for that. You, of course, have to keep data modeling, domain modeling in mind, be able to test and verify that in a sensible way. But in the end, it's all about the front end to enable the workflows um, the product team, the user experience team wants to see there. And for me, this can only work if the engineers are working closely together on a user experience journey or a new user journey, for example, having a sensible business understanding. And if you split into front-end and back-end teams, I have a hard time seeing how very good or excellent communication and product and business focus could work in such a setup. So I never got this separation, to be honest.
0: Okay. Because from my perspective, this is like the hard point when two people... Um, like one working on front end, one working on back end, synchronize, form contracts, um, uh, and rely on each other. Um, like whenever you have synchronization inside your company, it gets hard, right? In computing, correct. It's also hard. It's 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 hard. Context switching and synchroni- synchronization are really hard topics. Um, This is an excellent summary, yes. And this is why I'm looking for engineers.
1: If there's a front-end engineer, I love if they are able to also at least read the PHP backend code. And if it's a backend engineer, I want them to have a basic understanding at least of React and how a front-end works. And there's no need for them to be excellent in design or something, but they should get and have an understanding how the front-end works and how... A uh, framework like React—I don't care if it's Vue, React, or Angular in that case—but I want them to have a basic understanding of how that works. So, in the best case, the front-end developer and the back-end developer pair program on a feature they want to develop, and therefore build up a understanding for each other's uh, challenges.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Looking forward to see if you can find the right people there. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, 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 it's I, I possible. I'm. I'm. I'm like don't don't get me as a, like a too c- skeptical person on on SPAs and the complexity and, and front end versus back end I, I i mean i i kind of i'm I'm tempted to use those technologies as well but i also see like that there are alternatives popping up like for example in the ruby world or rails world there is uh, hotwire recently um as like uh, the new talk in town hotwire means html over the wire um means that um you use web sockets to in a way mimic the 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 quick response times of 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 uh single page web apps and the state um of single page web apps i kind of am curious to see if if this is going to be successful um and if maybe in 5 years from now we have like a more simple architecture again um that's yeah what what is your take on that
1: That's complex. (laughs) My take on that is very complex. So I find it really interesting how different architectures can use in the web and how similar they are after all at some point again. So transferring HTML snippets or web sockets, it sounds a lot like using PHP with fCGI, which also is a constant, uh, constantly running process and no, not CGI, if somebody remembers that from the uh, 2000s, not CGI anymore, like you start up the process every time again, and using HTTP2 with, um, uh, uh, with continuous connections, so not stopping and rebuilding the connection all the time. This should, in theory, have the same performance, on the other hand, there's of course a big aspect about again then on the server of shared state. So how does I'm not I don't know uh, the details of hotwire, but how is the state on the back end managed in those cases to be able to deliver this those responses via WebSocket in a very fast way? What I like about HTTP in particular maybe rest and also about the PHP uh, virtual machine which is called Zend engine is this optimization for stateless transfer which means that we respond or we reset the local environment basically for every request one of the biggest benefits there is when we are talking about scale is that i can just put the next server next to it, if I get more requests on a customer side, we just increase the amount of servers or virtual servers, virtual images, Docker containers, whatever you think about there, you just put more resources to that. As soon as you have state, continuous state in the backend, it really gets a lot harder to scale that up. Java had that problem at least beginning of this uh, century that they love to have consistent state inside the backend. And the only way then to scale up a Java application was to put bigger computers with more memories on the application, on the problem. This gets horribly expensive at some point. And of course, you limit your scaling abilities by the size of servers which which are available right now. So I love everything which is possible to put into horizontal scaling, which means just putting computers next to that. So, coming back to your hotwire question, so that would be my first uh, interest to understand how they solve that dilemma or if they don't care about scaling up their applications beyond a limit where servers get really expensive or single servers get really expensive. Um, other than that, delivering HTML, of course. And maybe even updating only parts of the page. This is also what we did with jQuery back then, right? So like 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> which <laughs> like at a certain point got messy whenever you had like a wizard where you had like 10 steps and uh, you needed something like a finite state machine and stuff like that. And you needed to sync synchron- Exactly. Synchron- and then we are back to
1: state management in, in the front end, which is complex. <laughs>
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So I I understood that you would still pick PHP these days then, right? For certain workloads, yes.
1: So in our stack, we we have Node.js backends, we have Go backends, and we have PHP backends. And for everything which is close to this stateless architecture, I would still pick PHP, yes. I think it's an amazing virtual machine for exactly this workload. PHP is by definition, and it always was, and this was one of the core aspects of PHP from the very beginning, uh, what's called shared nothing request processing. So what the PHP engine does, even with FCGI, where one PHP process, uh, process processes a lot of requests, it has a shutdown phase at the end where it, for example, also closes all file handles, database connections, resets all the variables, the global state. You should not be using that of- obviously, but it resets everything. And with the next request, you start with the- freshly again. As mentioned before, this enables you to do this horizontal scaling because putting the next server to next to your existing servers will just work. Uh, under certain circumstances, of course, you have to take care of sessions, uh, but those can be in the front end by now,
0: etc. I just I just wanted what to I, mention sessions, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. S- Sessions are one of the problems there, but I mean, this is solved. By now, you can use JWT sessions, which are then just in, stored in a cookie and uh, secured by a hash or even encrypted sometimes. Or just use, again, a shared state for sessions. could be a Redis server in the background, Memcache server, where the sessions are shared across all servers. So that's not a hard problem to solve. And next to that, there's almost nothing left. Maybe caches sometime, but then again, you shouldn't cache or you
0: shouldn't need to cache. Yeah, um, absolutely accepted and and, uh, like a a straight opinion. Um, I think... One topic where it really makes sense, um, not scaling up horizontally or trying to to scale up horizontally, is the database. Right? <laughs> it's at least my learning. Like, whenever, uh, like in, in interview situations, I every once in a while um, ask the question on how someone would manage, like especially for DevOps people, would manage like a multi-master um multi write uh, mysqL setup um mm-hmm. and yeah it, like the only from my perspective the only correct answer could be you ain't gonna need it <laughs> <laughs> there's there's like always a strong enough there's always a strong enough machine available um <laughs> that um will will keep you happy
1: yes and no so there's always, the limit we are talking about are basically disk writes. Um, at some point, your hard disks, um, SSDs, whatever, can only sustain so many disk writes. And to be sure that your data is safely stored, you, of course, have to have two file sync operations, at least in a, with the Linux kernel, to be sh- really sure the data is safely stored. And yes, hard disks are only so fast, so if you go beyond the number of writes, you cannot do that with a single server anymore. With MySQL, this really can be a challenge. I know there are also solutions to that, but this multi-master database setups, it doesn't work as easily for MySQL, but this is one of the reasons I love CouchDB. It's a really unpopular database, and you probably shouldn't ask me more about that because otherwise I will go on on that topic for hours. Um, one thing it enables you to do very easily is uh, sharding, which means that either so you do, do not have referential integrity in CouchDB, which makes it a lot easier, but it's a document-based database, so you you usually don't need that anyways. Um, there are cases for that still, but um, what it enables you to do first sharding based on your entity types, that would be based on tables in MySQL. And then again, you can even continue to use consistent hashing, for example, on maybe the ID of your entity to put that in different servers and then still merge all the results. This again only works because they are not using SQL to select data, but MapReduce to run queries on your data, which is a lot harder to get, especially for people new to CouchDB and MapReduce. But there are technologies for that which can work. And on top of that, CouchDB has multi master eventual consistent replication, which even works uh, back to China, uh, so between China and Europe with connection drops. There are challenges involved. I would love to talk more about that, but this probably won't fit into this
0: podcast. <laughs> yeah, I also remember, like me trying CouchDB a few years ago. Um, I also know one of uh, one of the inventors, Jan. I guess you know him too. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I know Jan very well. <laughs> I I think it's a great piece of software. Um, I think they had actually good timing um, because they just. Um, like CouchDB just came out whenever there was like a certain NoSQL trend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what, 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 what they missed. Um, in, the marketing um, by MongoDB was better. Potentially, yeah, at least yeah, potentially. My, my summary <laughs> of it.
1: I like CouchDB a lot more than MongoDB, but uh, the marketing wasn't as good. I mean, CouchDB is an Apache project, so fully open source. And MongoDB has a big company, by now big company behind it. So it's, of course, also an unfair uh, competitor from that point of view.
0: But there's also Couchbase, right? And there was a certain merger with Couchbase and Couchbase is, I think, private equity owned and so on. So there is mm-hmm. something- Couchbase some part. But- Couchbase
1: basically is MemcacheDB. Um So even the, the both have Couch in the name and even the same uh, main author, um, they, from, from an architecture point of view, they have nothing, almost nothing in common to me. So okay. it's more or less
0: DB. Okay, yeah, I never looked at that. I never looked at that, to be honest. I just was irritated by the name. Um, yeah,
1: that confused many people over the last years. wasn't the best choice to use that name from my point of view.
0: So um, I think we could um, go on and nerd for hours here. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, sounds I, like it. <laughs> I really, I really enjoy that. Um, I still like have a few more questions towards leadership. I, I think we can skip the like my remote questions as I, I know you're fully remote and um, you, you might have good ideas. But I, I think it's always good to have like a certain spin in the podcast. And we did it like mostly technical. Coming to mm-hmm. my my outro, typical outro questions. I'd like to know the three most impactful learnings um, for you as a, as a leader in the last years.
1: The first one is, and that's a learning probably everybody makes who funds a new startup and uh, scales it up, is that your job as a CTO will constantly change and it basically won't be the same for more than two or three months. With new people coming in, the it's interesting because it's also a conflict between the abilities you have as a founder or the abilities I have, where I'm most efficient in the company and how to help new people best, how to do what they know best and can do best inside the company. And this meant for me that I constantly had to look for new places where I'm most efficient and can help our shared to make our shared vision um, come to life best. And it's of course also not easy to do that all the time. And that g- takes me right to the next learning. I wasn't too bad keeping my work-life balance in the company I had before, which um, was not about developing a product. Um, but keeping a work-life balance in such a scaling startup is damn hard. And I fail at that, I have to say. I really tried to make sure our employees Do not work overtime, at least not unless it's really required. If you're very close to a deadline, this very seldomly happens. This happened like two times in Frontastic now. So I really try to keep this from happening, to have this not happen. But for me as a leader, with the feedback people need, this is really, really hard. And last but not least, to get more technical again, I think pull requests and pull request reviews are horribly overrated. And um, this is, uh, many people won't agree with that, I guess, but from what I learned again and again is that the first, and this is common knowledge, the longer a pull request gets, the less review it will get. Um, the second thing is, which means that people are fail to take the time a good and long pull request might need to review and really understand the side effects of everything. Um, I like trunk-based development. (laughs) Trunk is a term from SVN. I don't like the term master or main branch-based development um, where you always have a stable main branch. And having said that, I think pair programming is far more efficient in knowledge sharing between developers then reviews of pull requests can never be especially because the com- more complex a pull request gets usually the less intensely it will be reviewed by your
0: uh, fellow uh, developers um because in a way it means context switching right you need to uh, i yes. don't know get it running if you really want to review it, it fully end-to-end and and then you fail on the way and you rather do um, like a a pair programming session. there's also always this,
1: sorry, there's also always this implicit architectural or software design context, which you will always talk about when you do pair programming. So like this question, why are you doing it this way? Then you can explain about architectural constraints you have. You can explain... um, software design constraints or experience you had earlier when working on the same uh, piece of code. But this of course can happen in pull requests, but I see this happen so seldomly that you shit chat basically about related things and especially the more abstract it gets, the harder it is to also write things down and document things. And this will also hit you in pull request reviews because they are usually in written text inside some code and closely related to code. So it's a big picture and the vision usually is also lost there and easier to uh, to communicate about or chat about inside pair programming. I find that, or I see that at least very often. Mm.
0: Uh, yeah, interesting perspective. Um. I also see that um, like pair programming sessions are very or very, much more effective um, in, in so mm-hmm. many ways um, so I, I, I widely agree here
1: they also drain so much energy because you have to you will be focused so intensely when working together with somebody because you also do not want to look stupid for example they will drain a lot of energy this is a different problem and if you program for four hours you probably should call your eight hour day a day already because you invested all the energy you have
0: yeah makes sense um any tool you right now drive everyone drive your friends crazy with like every anything you discovered um you you in a way drive people nuts with
1: Maybe not nuts, but a tool I really like. As you mentioned, we are fully remote, and in this space, it's kind of hard to build the social connections, and also kind of hard to run into random people from your company which are not working in your department and which you weren't aren't meeting all the time with. I love Gather Town. The Chaos Computer uh, Club used a similar tool tool for the last conference, um, which is proximity chatting in an online game, you could say. So you have a simple two, two-dimensional two uh, space where you can walk around and as soon as you get close to some person, um, a video chat will start. And we have an office, a virtual office in GatherTown. I really like doing using that because you chat with people from, from other departments and you can run into people again, which usually doesn't happen in remote environments. And I even convinced my wife, who is a teacher, um, to use that during COVID times for her class because this enabled all the pupils of her class to join in this virtual classroom and also just chat with each other. So they were able to, to build groups close to a small lake or close to a tree, for example, and just chat inside that group without only one single person talking or being able to talk in a Zoom call, for example. So... It's a little bit fun. Some people are annoyed by the gaming aspect of that because this to them does not belong into a work context, but I love it to uh, get the social aspect of remote work um, at least solved a little bit.
0: Interesting. Um, Do you actually do your meetings in there or is it just like a constantly open space where people drop in every morning or how does that work?
1: Both, both. Um, So for example... In the morning, there's at the kitchen table, often a group of developers, often the same, but sometimes other people too join there and have their morning chat. Um, but we also have meeting rooms in there. And for example, if there is an emergency situation, we have an emergency meeting room where we meet also in Gather Town uh, for all people who want to help with that emergency. Um, and the nice thing again is, of course, you can see who is there and what's happening. And we also have desks in our gather town and this implicit communication of your work state, are you at the terrace outside? Are you at the kitchen table or are you at your desk or are you in the meeting room with a couple of people? Everybody immediately knows if they are able to chat with you or not because at, a, at your desk they know, okay, They are probably working on something. So if it's really urgent, I will get to them. If you're at the kitchen table, you know I can go by and uh, just chat with him because I want to. And if they're in a meeting room with others, uh, you immediately know I probably shouldn't disturb them right now. And this Slack status messages cannot solve it this nicely, I think.
0: Um, but but Slack also recently launched a feature for this, right? Uh, to to in a way solve it, like that audio chat that they integrated, where you can just h- hang out um, in certain channels and uh, mm-hmm. talk to people, talk about something, and everyone can join and so on. Because of GatherTown, we, I never used that, <laughs> to be honest, and nobody in our company is using
1: that. I think the reason for that is that we have our virtual office in GatherTown already, and
0: and who built that office?
1: Um, Actually, it was me. (laughs) This is an interesting fun fact. I did that as a weekend process uh, uh, project. Um, One interesting fun fact about me is that, and not many IT people have that, I was thinking when I finished school, should I study architecture, arts, or computer science? Computer science, of course, was the best choice for earning money. But I have some, uh, an artist in me, and I like to draw, for example, and I'm not too bad at visual things, which is given my back end focused role and uh, architecture focused role, probably a very seldom thing.
0: Okay, interesting. Interesting. If I ever want to build a gather town, I would then ping you and and ask you to build mine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so my please. race might be a little bit too high for that, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> please ask this guy if you want to have a gather town. So last but not least, my closing question. My favorite PHP function besides NL2BR is the, the function phpinfo. And I guess you didn't know, but um, I I have a friend called Tees Anson who like back in the days worked a lot in, in in the inner core of PHP, and he told me that there's like a secret parameter for that function, and it's it allows you passing a hash over which is which has like a I don't know a, a, a secret name uh, that you just can't can't guess what it is, and it allows you to to pass in uh, a tra- time travel parameter, and um, I now spin up my PHP um, engine on my computer and I pass time travel 2005 to that uh, PHP info function and um, we travel back in time now and uh, we see yourself like working at easy systems back then um, quite 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 a young guy still and um, you we now observe yourself, coding PHP, um, and, and, um, uh, silently whispering stuff that I can not understand. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something into young chorus ears. What, what would it be?
1: There's so much more to learn. There's, I, there's an interesting fun thing about developers. I think, um, once they go beyond the classic junior stage, there is a state where a dev- each developer thinks they know everything, and I think back then that's about the time I was in exactly that state. I thought, okay, I know everything about PHP now. I know everything about web application development, and there were so many things I wasn't even able to see. And the more experience you get, the more the world opens up again, and you see and understand all the things you don't know. You probably how many things there will be who you, which you will never be able to understand because there's just not enough time for that. And so much many more things open up where you can learn interesting things. So yeah, there's so much more to know everywhere.
0: Okay, thanks a lot. I hope
1: old Koro won't be disp- depressed by that. <laughs> <and young
0: Koro. laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, if young Koro would change something, then... Um or would just be curious to learn more so um mm-hmm. thanks a lot cole um it was a lot of fun talking to you and uh maybe we re- repeat that at a certain time and uh i wish you all all the best and uh all, all the luck uh this this world has to offer uh with your company and hope to see you soon again
1: thanks a lot it was really really nice talking to you i enjoyed it a lot um I would love to do this again at some point, maybe when there are some interesting news somewhere. So thanks a lot.
0: Let's do that. Bye-bye. Goodbye.